Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We have more coverage on what is happening in Maui coming up throughout the show today. There are a couple of flights that are arriving this morning that were delayed from Lahaina, from Maui, and we'll keep you posted on what it's been like for Canadians. So there's more to come on that. In the meantime, though, we have some other stories to talk about, including the idea of a mystery, a really good one. Like, how do you feel about mysteries? I love hearing about them. Some of them, though, I feel like, oh, maybe we should just leave them as a great mystery. Do we always need to find out everything? Well, apparently some people do, because there is a massive search underway this month for the legendary Loch Ness Monster in Scotland. It is anticipated to be the largest effort to figure out what's going on with the Loch Ness Monster since the 1970s, believe it or not. Dr. Charles Paxton is one of the people who will be participating in this. He's a research fellow at the University of St. Andrews Centre for Research into Ecological and Environmental Modelling. So we caught up to him and we asked him about the Loch Ness Monster and his fascination with the story. Well, Dr. Paxton, thanks so much for joining us. First of all, let me ask you, why are you so fascinated with the Loch Ness Monster? Ah, because I'm a big kid at heart. (laughs) Was it the first time you ever heard about it that you were fascinated by it? Like, tell us, how did you become fascinated? Uh, Well, more seriously, yeah, I've always been interested in stories, many small boys, about stories about monsters, even as a child. And I was always more interested in aquatic monsters and other sorts of monsters. Um, But I'm also a professional scientist. And it occurred to me that there were interesting questions that could be asked about people's uh, experiences and beliefs about monsters that could be investigated scientifically in a way in which hadn't been investigated in the past. And so as a hobby, I kind of do this uh, uh, yeah, as something I do in my spare time. So you apply kind of scientific principles to some of these mysteries? Yeah, so I ask questions like, you know, what's the chances of there being new animals uh, to await discovery by science? How big do giant squids get? Um, what can collecting together lots and lots of different reports of the Loch Ness Monster tell us about the Loch Ness Monster as a reported phenomena? And those questions like that. Right. Okay. So this 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 newest um, investigation that's going to happen here about the Loch Ness, how special, how unique is this? Um, it's, as far as I can tell, um, it's, the, it's the first time in a few decades that anybody's tried to do a coordinated watch of the Loch um, there have been big kind of search events on Loch Ness before. Um, going back to the 1980s, 1990s, there was a big systematic sonar scan of the loch where a whole fleet of um, small boats went down the loch looking to see if they could get any echoes. And they did find echoes. It's just trying to interpret what those echoes actually mean. So what do you think they need to do here to take a better look at this? Um well, it really depends on the question that you want to, to ask. If you want to ask, um, 
is there a Loch Ness monster? Well, I, I suppose getting people to look at the Loch may have a chance of seeing something. If you want to try and explain what's reported as some sort of sociological phenomena, there may be other ways of investigating the, what's being reported. Okay, so it depends. So what if we were looking at this from purely uh, a scientific perspective, as in could there be a creature down there? What should we do? I think if we really wanted to do that, the best thing to do would be to repeat the full sonar scan that was done in the um, 1980s or 90s, I can't remember which. I, I think because if there was any sort of large animal that had any sort of airbag inside it, lungs or swim bladder or something like that, then that if it's present, that should be picked up by that if there was a big systematic scan of the log. Do you have a it's favorite theory? To prove a negative. Yeah. I guess so. Sorry, again. I said, do you have a favorite theory about what you think it is? Oh, I think it has lots of origins. It, it, um, I actually, um, me and my colleague, Adrian Shine, actually, um, we wrote a paper where we documented um, how many different hypotheses there had actually been for the Loch Ness Monster. And we, at that point, I think there were something like 85 different really? hypotheses for what the Loch Ness Monster could be. And I think then, then there's been about another 16 or so. So there's over 100 different hypotheses for what the Loch Ness Monster is. And I, I think that so people report the Loch Ness Monster and I think their reports can have lots and lots of different origins. Some of them are um, to do with um, blocks of vegetation coming up from the bottom of the loch um, and becoming buoyant because of gases that in the decom uh, because of decom decomposition and they appear for a moment at the surface and then sink. I think oh, often it's, it's wakes of boats. The boat is disappears around the headland, the wake is still visible if, if it's a nice, uh, not very windy day, and that wake is interpreted as a sinuous, snake-like monster moving through the water. So the Loch Ness Monster has lots of origins. Right. Is there, is there any kind of consistency in terms of what, when they see the, what they think is the physical version of the Loch Ness Monster, is there a consistency to what they're describing? Uh... Yes, I've got to be a bit careful here because I've got a, as, as a conscientious scientist, I don't want to preempt a paper that hasn't been published yet. Um, there are consistencies in what, in what is reported, and what you can find is that um, <clears throat> there are certain types of report um, where certain things are reported, where, where certain features are reported, and 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 those are those are consistent within themselves, although they're quite. The types of report are quite different from each other, but within those types, they're quite consistent. Okay, so that I would, what I'm hearing there is that there is a type of consistency when it comes to what people are describing. So that would be that would be positive, right? It's not like people are all seeing something different. Yeah, no. Well, people report different things, but but, but there are there are consistencies in what they report within within types. Yes, so that's true. Um, I, I personally think the vast majority of witnesses are perfectly sincere in the sense that they've seen something on Loch Ness. The question is, what have they actually seen? That is the question. Okay, so this new examination that's going to be done now, the biggest, is this the biggest that has ever been done? Um, well, it would depend how many people turn up on the day. <laughs> um, with the plans that are given, if like several thousand people turn up, then that would be the biggest of its type, yes. Wow. Okay. So I, I always feel like, though, Dr. Paxton, sometimes we just like a mystery. Like, do we really want to answer this question? Do we really want to know or do we like the mystery? 
Well, you're right there, of course. I mean, I'd, I'd rather, although I'm personally skeptical about the existence of an unknown animal in Loch Ness, I would love, love to be wrong. Um, <laughs> I'd rather, rather be wrong than right on this one, but uh, I think I am right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I'd like to live in a world that still has monsters in it. Yeah, mysterious monsters, right? Like, we don't need to answer every single question. Well, I think um, familiarity is an important part of being a monster. So things, we have lots, we have lots of creatures in, in the world which are actually quite strange, like, you know, giraffes and carpies and even elephants. And we don't think of them as monstrous because they're really, really familiar, but they're, they're quite odd-looking animals. So I think familiarity is an important component of being a monster. Well, we'll see what gets answered here. Dr. Paxton, thanks for, so thank you for your time. No problem. Thank you. That's Dr. Charles Paxton, research fellow at the University of St. Andrews Center for Research into Ecological and Environmental Modeling, fascinated as so many people are by the Loch Ness Monster. And later on this month, actually, but I think right around August 22nd or so, is when they're going to launch this very large investigation into the Loch Ness Monster. This is the largest kind of search that has been done uh, since the early 1970s. It does make you wonder, though, what what has taken so long, right? Let's let's get to the bottom of this. I think we kind of like the mystery. We don't really want to search and find absolutely nothing, or we don't really want to search and find some benign, you know, kind of harmless answer for it. We like the mystery. There's nothing wrong with that sometimes, right? This is Mornings with Simi. One of many great Robbie Robertson songs. Vaughn Palmer is with us this morning for the Vancouver Sun. Of course, we have to start with talking about how amazing Robbie Robertson was. Uh, We do indeed, Simi. And I I think one of the most amazing things about this amazing person is captured in the headline on his obituary in the New York Times today, which says, Canadian songwriter captured the American spirit. He really did. That's true. The, the the band albums, uh, I mean, people have remarked on this again and again, that Robertson's songwriting, his words, uh, captured an a aspect of the American culture and history as an outsider. Uh, there's a great line from Bruce Springsteen in the New York Times obituary saying when he heard the, the band album, their second album, uh, he thought those guys had been around forever. They, where did they come from? And, you know, it's interesting. Robertson himself provided an answer to that. He said when they recorded their first album, they had already been working on the road all over the United States and Canada for six or seven years, often at night, show after show, not getting paid much, very hard work on the road, So when they actually got around to recording, they had paid their dues in a way that not many bands had done at that time. We know the Beatles did because they played in Hamburg, but it's that unusual background and history that I think we talk about. Um, The other thing, Simi, that jumped out at me in the obituary, and it's in the Globe, the obituary as well today, and in the UK Guardian, um, this guy's heritage. So his mother... His mother was a Mohawk from a Cayuga uh, from the Six Nations Reserve. And uh, he didn't know this until much later, but his mother finally told him his actual father was a Jewish gangster 
who died before Robertson was born. So, you know, <laughs> a unique and rich heritage. Obviously, he lived through the music of other people because he was a songwriter and a guitarist and an impresario and a band leader and later uh, worked with Martin Scorsese on a lot of uh, film music. But what a rich and varied history and what a remarkable person. It really was. And like I, I have his first, that solo album that he did, which didn't come out yeah. until 1989. Uh, and that was one of the first things I ever bought on CD. But when you think about how huge that album was compared to his career before that too, like just talk about the talent. Yes. So he broke up the band in 1976 with a final show at... Uh, Winterland in San Francisco. I know some Canadians who went down to see it. Alas, I didn't. Uh, you can find the clips from that on YouTube, and I spent last evening watching them. And some of the greatest performances ever done on stage by different artists are there. And then, as you say, he what took a dozen years off from yeah. really recording anything prominent. It worked with uh, produced Neil Diamond albums and very good ones, by the way, and then uh, returns with his solo album and uh, both his first two solo albums, both very, very strong and then fades again. Although I see in the obituary today, uh, he continued to work on film music with Martin Scorsese. And in fact, his last work isn't out yet. That new Scorsese film that's coming out in October, Killers of the Flower Moon, the music consultant on that was again, Robbie Robertson, great friend of Martin Scorsese. So, you know, this is a guy with a unique and rich history. Uh, I recommend the listener go on YouTube and have a look at some of the performances from the last waltz. There's Robbie Robertson in the center playing the guitar, uh, clearly the band leader, and yet all the singing, all the performing, uh, the great performances, uh, Joni Mitchell and so forth, are by other people. And so I understand as well that other band members wish that he had never done that, yes. that he hadn't broken up the band. Yeah, the saddest part of the band story is the breakup of the friendship between Levon Helm. So the only member of that band that wasn't a Canadian was Levon Helm, the drummer. He was from Arkansas, and he's the voice you hear, that authentic voice, because it was authentic, on something like The Night They Drove All Dixie Down or Up on Cripple Creek. He had a terrific voice. And for a long time, they were in the band together, and Robertson saw Helm as a bit of a mentor. But after the band broke up, Helm wrote a very bitter memoir, uh, in which he accused Robertson of hogging all the credit, regretted that he'd broken up the band. Robertson, in his own memoir, said he just felt like his friend had been taken over by a demon, but they never reconciled. Mm. Helm died of uh, what cancer, I think, in 2012. So there, that's a sad, sad dimension to an otherwise very powerful story. Oh, amazing history there, too. So sad. I thought 80... Oh, still had years Eight left. Eight years old, it's not bad. <laughs> not bad, but I still think there could have been years left there. Years yeah. left. Uh, well, thank you for that, Vaughn. I know we're going to talk about some political stuff, as we usually do. Uh, let's talk about what's going on on Vancouver Island, like with Tofino. How, it feels like this is the summer of them being cut off. Yeah, so Highway 4 is interrupted again, this time by rain. So let's see. Uh, the 
only highway link to tourist center of uh, the west coast of Vancouver Island has been interrupted this year by construction, maintenance, rock scaling, forest fires, wind, uh, things falling on the road, landslides, and now rain. And it's, it's cut off again. Uh, well, the highways ministry has protocols that say uh, when it's dangerous, one of them is based on rainfall. When the rainfall exceeds a certain level, they close the highway because they're worried about it washing out or ending up on top of somebody's vehicle. So that's why they do it. But it caught everybody over there by surprise. The community's going, you know, how long, how long, how long do we have to put up with this? And it's initiated a discussion about whether or not there's any chance of a backup route to serve those communities so that when the highway goes out, uh, they don't lose their tourist business. They don't have people stranded. That's the idea anyway. And the regional district is commissioning a study of options. Okay. Are they actually thinking about building another road? Well, the highways ministry says uh, we'll pay attention to the study. There are alternative routes. Uh, People in the know know about them, but they're precarious. Uh, One of them is very, very narrow. That goes around Horn Lake. You can look it up on your BC map. Uh, The other one is the Banfield Road, and it goes out to Banfield, and it also then links up to the southern part of the island. You can go that way, but remember, that is not a particularly safe road. They've done some work on it lately, but remember that busload of students from the University of Victoria went off the road on it. These roads are just not to the standard of BC highways. They discourage people from using them except when there's no other route. And of course, they used the bypass uh, back when the highway had to be closed uh, because of the forest fires. So there are options there, but it, you know, Simi, I mean, it triggers a debate, genuine, I think, about cost, first of all, won't be cheap. Building roads in British Columbia are not cheap. A former BC highways minister once said you could pave over the entire province of Saskatchewan for what it costs to build a kilometer of roads in British Columbia. So it's expensive. There's a bigger debate too, though, Simi, and that is what does it mean to open up parts of the province to more roads? What does it bring to those remote parts of the province? And of course, now, when you do that, Simi, you involve the Indigenous people of British Columbia as well. That seems like such a, and we talked about this, you know, when the flooding happened and the roads got washed out and it it, it became very clear that how limited we are in terms of being able to have roads leading in and out of this province, but really geography limits us a lot of the time. It does indeed, you know, and I have a, a former colleague here on Vancouver Island who whose hobby is to go down these forest roads and these remote roads in British Columbia. And what he finds is people dumping old vehicles and garbage all over the place. He finds evidence of illegal logging. He finds damage to habitat. Now, he reports all this, but that's the other side. It's true that if you were to build a brand new highway, uh, through to, say, Port Alberni from, say, uh, Lake Cowichan on Vancouver Island. Again, you can look it up. There is a route there. Uh, You're going to be opening up all those parts of the province to the risks of everything from wildfire to people dumping garbage to impact on indigenous lands. 
And I think that's why you end up with a, leg- with a legitimate debate. And of course, the other thing is you get a costing on one of these projects and then you go, the government's going to go, well, is that, it's going to be a billion dollars, right? Like I'm just picking that number out of the air. It'll be hundreds of millions of dollars. And the government goes, well, is that the right priority? I mean, there's lobbying on Vancouver Island for the government to find a way to get around the Malahat to build a different road because that road gets closed all the time by accidents. Every other part of British Columbia has a, a road they'd like to be built or upgraded to because, as you say, Simi, this is a very difficult province to build roads, a very expensive province to do that, and a very expensive to maintain them given the impact of the changing weather on the existing roads. Also, and you make an excellent point too, you're, you build another road, that means more access, it's yeah. more readily available. And I wonder if even the people who live in those communities really want that. Yeah, well, you know, you uh, <laughs> you want to have some fun, Simi. Start talking about linking the Gulf Islands with bridges. <laughs> there are a lot of places where you could put a bridge, you know, and eliminate sure. the ferry service. And what an, an idea. Ugly, an ugly mob with torches and tarred feathers will be busy <laughs> blowing. The last thing they want is a whole bunch of interlopers coming to their island. So uh, the government actually did, or BC Ferries actually did, a study along those lines on Gabriola Island. And, well, I'll just tell you, Gabriola Island now has two new ferries and grumbles about the fact that one of them is out of service when anybody phones in sick. But the people on the island definitely didn't want the other option, which was get rid of the ferry service and build a bridge. It's funny because if you live on the mainland, people are like, yeah, build a bridge. I get emails like that all the time. Oh, yeah. And then you wonder, well, why haven't they really seriously thought about that? You just hit the nail on the head about why they haven't thought about that. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, Pat McGear, who passed away last year, did do the definitive study, at least the only one we have, of a fixed link between Vancouver Island and the mainland. And he always predicted that someday we would build it. And he donated all of his papers and engineering drawings and even had paintings of what it would look like. It used to be on the wall of his office. He donated all that to the provincial archives. So if anybody wants to research it, you can go there. There are a couple of very big obstacles to that. One of them is the price tag, which would be in the billions of dollars. And the other is that Georgia Strait is really deep. It would be difficult to build a bridge across it. You might have to go with a floating bridge. And of course, just ask the folks in Washington state, floating bridges have been known to sink. And then what would we do when we'd shut down the ferry service and sold (laughs) off all the boats? (laughs) Oh, yes. I love all these theoretical questions. Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Sam. That is Von Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. He's right, though. Without fail, whenever we talk BC ferries, I will get emails. Vaughn will get emails saying, it's time for us to talk about building a bridge. Well, Vaughn just very accurately put, uh, you know, put it right there, the nail on the head, about why we don't get very far when we talk about building bridges uh, to the island and the Gulf Islands. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now we're facing a real challenge around housing in terms of supply. Uh, There's simply not enough places for people to live right across uh, the lower and middle income uh, spectrum. And I'll be blunt as well, housing isn't a primary federal responsibility. 
Okay, those comments from the Prime Minister a week or two ago are are still reverberating with people who are trying to help solve the housing crisis in this country. I mean, if not the federal government making this a primary responsibility, then really who? And where does the buck stop here? And it's the federal government. They can get involved if they really want to. They can make this a primary responsibility. So maybe the question is, how do they do that? Well, our next guest is going to help us out with that. Dr. Carolyn Weitzman is a housing researcher and adjunct professor in the Department of Geography, Environment and Geomatics at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Weitzman, thanks for being here. Hi, Simi. Were you disappointed when you kind of heard those comments from the Prime Minister? Yeah, I was disappointed. Um, I think that, uh, you know, (laughs) housing is not mentioned as a responsibility of any level of government in 1867, neither is climate change, but obviously the federal government has a big role to play. And as you said yourself, um, if not the federal government, then who's going to take the lead? Right. And you mentioned climate change. They certainly have made that a priority. They can make housing a priority if they want to. But how do you think they should do that? Well, at the moment, the federal government is spending a lot of money on um, financing for housing that isn't necessarily affordable for the people who need it the most. So in those introductory remarks, there was a talk about low-income people. That's 78% of the people who are in core housing need and 100% of people who are homeless. So there does need to be renewed commitment to deeply affordable housing. There's one program in the National Housing Strategy called the Rapid Housing Initiative. It wasn't even there initially, and it's been the most successful in terms of building housing that can help get people off the street, can help people who otherwise just won't be able to find homes in private sector rental. So how do they do that? Like what kind of a program would help them do that? Well, the Rapid Housing Initiative came out of uh, COVID. It was a one-time um, uh, announcement in the 2020 budget. It's been one-time announcement since then. Any developer, whether they're private or nonprofit, need a certain amount of um, continuity and certainty. So it should become a regular program, and definitely it should be done in concert with um, the provincial government because the provincial government um, uh, can provide health and social services and also can take a look at things like welfare and minimum wage, which haven't kept up with rent prices. Right. But we talk a lot about kind of, we in, you know, the missing middle out here in BC, we talk about the missing yeah. middle when it comes to housing. Are there ways to build that? You know, are there ways to encourage it? We find that the, the roadblock really seems to be when you get to that municipal level. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I know that the BC government's doing a lot of work with municipalities. The federal government has two tools at its disposal. The first is there's a national building code, and there's been some really great work out of BC on how making small apartment buildings easier uh, could be accomplished through some fairly simple changes in uh, the building code. Uh, the second way that the federal government can get involved is, frankly, in its, its bully fact, um, um, factor. It has believers on a lot of infrastructure funding. It could make that infrastructure funding conditional on um, uh, upzoning, uh, which is something that the provincial government in BC is already talking about. One of the issues right now in BC, and I don't want to get too dragged down in the weeds, 
is that, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, a three-story minimum, but really you need something like four stories and no limit on the units and no setbacks and no parking requirements because municipalities, and there's like 700 of them across Canada, are all having their own consultation process and um, they're all having their own rules. There isn't time for that anymore. Okay. I also like the idea of some of the things you suggested here about like taxation reforms. Like that's certainly something the federal government can do, right? Like tweaking taxation so that people, that developers have an incentive to do this. Oh, absolutely. If you look at the evidence, um, purpose-built rental really fell off a cliff in the early 70s. So that's almost 50 years ago when the federal government changed some of its taxation mechanisms that previously had supported the construction of purpose-built rental. Similarly, um, the um, social housing or, or non-market housing fell off a cliff in the early 1990s when the federal government said, oh, that's not really our responsibility anymore. Let's look to the provinces. And the provinces weren't able to, perhaps weren't willing to step up. But if you look at the international commitments that the federal government has made to realizing the right to housing, and it's there in um, actual law, the National Housing Strategy Act, the federal government has to be taking the lead. You know, Dr. Weitzman, what strikes me about a lot of this is that it just feels to be like a political bun fight. Do you know what I mean? Like for the last 25, 30 years, it's been back and forth between, no, the feds say the province can look after it, the province says the federal government should look after it. And we're going back yeah. and forth. But in and the meantime, literally yeah. dying on the street yeah. while we're passing it around like a hot potato. So, you know, um, the the attitude that I'd like to suggest uh, for the federal government is that it be the leader of Team Canada and municipalities with one uh, definition of affordable housing, one set of targets, and one set of interlocking policies. That's simply not happening right now. Right. So they can lead on this issue. They're just choosing not to. They have to lead. Yeah, we haven't seen that yet, though, have we? Dr. Weitzman, thank you so much for that. No problem, Simi. Appreciate that. Dr. Caroline Weissman is a housing researcher and adjunct professor in the Department of Geography, Environment and Geomatics at the University of Ottawa. Talking about the federal government, you know, they say that that's not their primary responsibility, but them taking the lead on this, doing more uh, to help build affordable housing, make it happen right across the country, because it is a Canada-wide problem. And I was reading a story interesting um, from Montana of all places, it turns out Montana is doing or has done what Premier David Eby has been kind of musing about here in BC, where they took away the the rights essentially of local governments, like, you know, cities, municipalities, what we would call them here, to decide what developments can and can't be built. You know, Havon and I were earlier in the week talking about how the missing middle was such a huge issue for Premier Eby and uh, the former Victoria Mayor Lisa Helps, but the local Victoria Council has put all these kind of poison pill setbacks and things that make it virtually impossible to build the type of housing that is required. Well, in Montana, they had the same problem where developers wanted to build more housing, more affordable housing, accommodations for people, for workers, all of that, but local opposition was making it impossible to get that stuff built. The, the state government of Montana stepped in and said, nope, we are going to pass a bill. And they did it in a bipartisan fashion. We're going to pass a bill and we're going to override that. And we are going to make it so that if it meets X, Y, Z, 
that it can be built and the local government can't do anything to stop it. And they desperately needed this housing in Montana for people, for residents to live in, people who work, we're talking middle-income people, uh, to live and work in these communities. And they managed to get it done. Now, it'll take years to find out, you know, to get all this stuff up and running and to see if that actually works. But they are making the moves already that BC is actually thinking about. Now, would you support that idea? Is to say to local governments, no, 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 no. You, if, if it meets all of these requirements, then you have to build it, no matter what local opposition says. Or do you think that takes too much power away from neighbourhoods? This is Mornings with Simi. This really has been the summer where we talk about wildfires and the impact they are having. We have lost a couple of firefighters this season, which had not happened for a, a quite a long time, quite a few years. And so we know how incredibly arduous it is, the toll that it takes on a firefighter to jump into incredibly changing conditions to fight these wildfires. In fact, there's been research done on this that shows the toll that it does take on the body is equivalent to doing something like the Tour de France. Think about how hard that is. So do we give people enough training, enough warning about this is what it's going to be like? We're going to talk to somebody who's done research in this area. It's Dr. Brent Ruby, research professor for the School of Integrative Physiology and Athletic Training at the University of Montana. Dr. Ruby, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Good morning. So tell us a little bit more about this. So what kind of toll does this take on the body if you are a firefighter fighting a wildfire? Well, most of the crews that we've studied down here in the the lower 48, and I guess the upper one, if you want to count Alaska, um, we've studied the energy demands using a technique that is sort of a gold standard strategy. Uh, and the energy demands are extreme. I mean, four to 6,000 calories per day energy expenditure, which is a lot of food to consume. And if they don't consume that, they have a difficult time managing the day-to-day operations. But most of them are very physically fit to begin the season. It's just a matter of trying to not become physically decayed as the season just beats you down. So are, are we then adequately preparing firefighters for the toll this is going to take on them? Physically, I would absolutely say that even though there is no uniform training strategy, all the crews that we've worked with, they do a fine job of physically training themselves, uh, training themselves to handle the, the mental toll that perhaps the season takes on them. That's a whole different ballgame. In what way? Well, uh, I wish I knew. I wish that was my, I, I wish we could uncover some of those things, but the, the mental stress and just being away from family uh, and then re- trying to re-engage and start of the post-traumatic stress-oriented issues, those are things that are really hard for us to measure. We can quantify what they eat, what they drink, and demonstrate how hard that is to keep up with. But the the mental strain is something that eludes us, and we're trying to do more. We're trying to do a better job to uh, get our fingers on that. Right. Oh, that's that's interesting then. So that's something, how often have we thought about PTSD in in firefighters in these situations? I feel like that's something that doesn't get a lot of attention. It doesn't, and it really should, because there is evidence, not from our lab, but there is evidence that the PTSD that some of these fire crews 
and individuals have to deal with is similar to or maybe worse in some cases than what we see in the military. Really? And what about the toll, like the physiological toll that this takes? The physiological toll is a strange paradox because even though the energy demands are really high, like their training as hard as they're training and they're working as hard as a lot of elite endurance athletes are on a day-to-day basis. That should do good things for the body. But when you layer on top all these other stresses from the job, like the smoke, bad sleep, not a great diet, the stress, all of those things combined sort of weave themselves together and slam down on these crews. And what we see is a lot of times crews will get their body fat will go up over the course of the season. Their blood lipid panels will go in an unfavorable direction. So these cardiovascular decay issues, some of these cardiovascular metabolic markers, um, they go in the wrong direction. And that's a little bit scary. So we don't know why, despite the high physical demands and the hard work that they're doing, they're they're showing these negative signs over the course of the season. So, so is it really equivalent to them doing like the Tour de France? Well, the reason for that comparison is that the daily energy expenditure of a hotshot on a hardworking assignment is comparable to days in the Tour in terms of the overall energy demand, six to up to in upwards over 6,000 calories per day of energy expenditure, which is extreme for a human. Right. Okay. You spend a lot of time studying this, don't you? Oh, the last 25 years or so. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think we're making progress then in all that time that you've been studying this? Oh, man. I wish we were making it faster than we were, but we are absolutely making progress. We're getting... Uh, we're learning a lot more every year we do these studies and it's slow to impact policy, but we are making a difference. The food is getting better. The, the focus on mental health and wellness is getting better. The training strategies that match exactly what the job requires is getting better. Uh, the communication between the scientists and the firefighter is getting better, which is Uh, It's awesome to see, but I just wish it would happen faster. Yeah, we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, Dr. Ruby, thank you so much Mm -hmm. for your time. Right on. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Brent Ruby, research professor for the School of Integrative Physiology and Athletic Training at the University of Montana. This is Mornings with Simi. BC has a health problem. I mean, besides the ones that we already know about, we're talking about hepatitis C. Thousands of British Columbians live with this chronic infection. So now the BC government is allocating some money to create what they call a roadmap to try and eliminate hep C by the year 2030. Where do you even start with something like that? Well, our next guest has some ideas. Dr. Brian Conway is the medical director of the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre and knows all too well how deadly hep C can be. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Simi. First of all, how do people get hepatitis C? It is mainly transmitted by blood. So people would acquire it through injection drug use or use of uh, street drugs. It can be transmitted through contaminated blood products. And it can be transmitted through needles to which one would be exposed in another way. Some pregnant women can transmit it 
during uh, during pregnancy, about 5% of cases. But think of it mainly as a disease that's transmitted by blood. Okay, and so what happens when you have it? Well, most people might not even know they're infected for years, if not decades. Most people have absolutely no symptoms, and one needs to test people who may have had risk behaviors to find out if they have it before they get sick. If you wait too long, the liver can fail, person can die from that, person can develop liver cancer. And obviously, while they are infected, if they don't know about it, they can transmit it to others, making the problem even worse. Okay, so that when it does flare up, when people do realize that they have it, what kind of complications does it cause? Well, it can cause some general symptoms. A person can feel tired, can have pain in their stomach, nausea, vomiting, uh, those types of things. They can uh, have bleeding from their, uh, from their stomach. They can have fluid accumulate in their, in their belly. They can develop uh, liver cancer that could have spread before it is, uh, it is diagnosed. And by the time any of these symptoms develop, it's often uh, too late for us to be able to, to help that person and, and recover completely from the consequences of hepatitis C. So it's far better to have a program of broad testing of people who may have been exposed so that we'd av- avoid this issue as much as possible. How do you avoid it then? If you can find out earlier if people were exposed to this or they might have it, then what can you do? Well, we have curative treatment available. Over the past five or 10 years, we have had pills that you can take for eight to 12 weeks that cure the disease in 95% of cases or more. The issue is making people aware of the availability of the cure, making people aware of the fact that they might have been infected and should be tested, and the fact that the pills are widely available, mostly free of charge here in British Columbia to anyone who would require them. So it really is an issue of testing, linkage to care, treatment, cure, and get on with your life. Dr. Conway, that sounds like remarkable in that we can cure it, but you don't know you have it when you can cure it, as opposed to when you know you have it, it's too late. Absolutely. And that is why we need to encourage people to get tested. We've identified people who are more at risk, those who have ever used street drugs, people who've been incarcerated, uh, people who are immigrating to Canada. Indigenous populations are particularly susceptible to to having uh, been infected through various uh, risk behaviors. People who are between the age of 45 and 75, so-called baby boomers plus, constitute the majority of cases and many of these individuals have never been tested for hepatitis c so the first thing we need to do is to get the word out get your test simple blood test have the results in a week or so if you're positive if you're infected treatment is widely available in british columbia so go out and get it get cured and get get on with your life after hepatitis c and that's really the message of World Hepatitis Day uh, last month, and that's something that uh, hopefully we'll be able to do here in British Columbia and eliminate hepatitis C over the next several years, at least eliminate it as a significant public health concern. Okay, so then would you say it's more outreach? It's all about more outreach? It's getting the knowledge out there. It's to say, look, something that you might have done 40 years ago, 50 years ago, that you may not even remember or that you don't want to remember. Look, it may have transmitted hepatitis C. Next time you go to see your healthcare provider, say, hey, I want a hepatitis C test. Or going to have the healthcare providers ask, did you ever have a hepatitis C test? Go and get it. And by the way, if it's positive, uh, probably 
but we'll be able to cure you. Almost certainly we'll be able to cure you. And that's the good news about hepatitis C. We just need to get it out there more. I guess it's part of the problem here that people might not remember if they had an incident where they might have been exposed, right? Well, it might be a good idea to test everyone in the population at least once. The public health uh, sort of uh, message around that is something that we uh, that uh, that is definitely credible and is being done in many countries and it's something that uh, should be considered this this uh, provincial process of a, of a roadmap towards hepatitis C elimination committee i have the pleasure of participating in chaired by Dr. Bartlett and Deb Schmitz of uh, BC Hepatitis Network and the BCCDC is really i think the tool that's going to produce document over the next 6 months or so that is really going to help us develop a made-in-BC plan to control hepatitis C. What kind of a difference can that make by just getting to people and getting them this medication? Is it possible, do you think, to really actually eliminate hep C? Well, we won't eliminate it completely, but we will certainly eliminate it as a significant public health concern, and that's really our goal over the next uh, six or seven years. Look, people take care of their cars sometimes better than they take care of themselves. You bring in your car for regular maintenance, couple of times a year and there are significant consequences to not doing so and really this is the message of hepatitis c take care of yourself do this preventative maintenance get this test done if it's negative and you're not engaging in any behaviors that would uh, expose you to hepatitis c that's it you're negative if you're positive the treatment is dead easy and almost always works so take care of yourself like you take care of your car you know, that's great advice when you put it that way, because that's very true. So then, Dr. Conway, if people are listening out there, who should be tested? Who should go to their doctor and say, I should be tested? Well, pretty well everyone could request a test once in their lives. But if you've ever used street drugs, people who've been incarcerated, people between the age of 45 and 75, people who are identified as Indigenous, people who are newly arrived in Canada, and we think that people between the age of 45 and 75, by constituting the, the majority of cases, that if you haven't been tested, you're in that age group, go out and get a test, along with the, the next time that your healthcare provider orders blood test, tick that extra little box, hepatitis C antibody testing, dead easy. All right, we'll put the word out there. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That is Dr. Brian Conway, who is the Medical Director and Specialist of Infectious Diseases at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre, talking about the awareness campaign to get more people tested for hep C. For instance, did you know that the hep C virus is so severe that once you develop the symptoms, once it kind of takes hold, it is a deadly communicable disease. It actually surpasses AIDS and tuberculosis and the number of fatalities that we have. And so, yeah, you can see why they would want to get everybody tested because if you don't know you have it and it's just kind of lurking there, there's medication for it and they can pretty much cure you of it. So they aim to put some money towards developing a roadmap to eliminating it by the year 2030. That may involve, you know, somebody like you going out there or somebody like me going out and getting a hep C test. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Maui's main airport is open and operational this morning. That coming straight from the Hawaii Department of Transportation. Flights are leaving, maybe not on schedule, but they are leaving. Now, they are working hard to evacuate thousands of people, residents and tourists alike. And room being is being made for people in Oahu, where the Hawaii Convention Center is getting ready for thousands of people, as you've been hearing in the news. And airlines are also working to get people home as well. This following the death devastating wildfires of the last couple of days. Just the ones from yesterday that destroyed the historic town of Lahaina just came out of nowhere. There was a hurricane that was passing not far from Hawaii, but it really whipped up the winds. And so what started as a small brush fire turned into a raging inferno within minutes and just swept through Lahaina, destroying it. And that's why we're seeing so much devastation there. At least 36 people have been killed. Uh, They are working to find more survivors and just get a hold of the situation there. So both WestJet and Air Canada have flights arriving at YVR this morning. In fact, an Air Canada flight is arriving momentarily from Maui. So we will check in with our Scott Schantz, who is at YVR, in a few minutes. But first, we had a chance to talk to Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets about what you need to know. Claire, thanks for doing this. First off, what do we know at this point about what is going on for for Canadians in Maui? Well, first, let me start, Sammy, by saying I am so heartbroken over the fires on Maui, and I've been trying to work on deadlines, and since I heard of the news, it's literally been haunting me, and I've tried to focus on work and deadlines. I just find it so hard. I keep going online and checking on Twitter or X or multiple news sources just to find out what's happening, and what we know is that as of um, this morning, there were at least 36 reported deaths on a relatively small and really close-knit island, and I just worry that it may never be the same um of course fueled by winds from a hurricane hundreds of miles away it's just these wildfires have swept over like bone dry patches of maui and um also the island of hawaii but at like just a furious pace and just travel trapping people in their cars forcing dozens to dive in the ocean to escape the flames um the loss of human life, I feel, is like almost unfathomable. And the, the damage to homes and businesses, just staggering. I mean, um, just to, I, I feel very, very fortunate to have been to Maui many times. I think the first time I kind of visited the island was when I was 10 years old. I, I absolutely love it. I love it to this day. Um, but the town of Lahaina, which... For, for many who know it, it was kind of the capital of yeah. the Kingdom of Hawaii and, um, you know, the, the, the center for whaling back in the day. It's become this mecca for tourists around the world. And our family, and I know lots of people, regardless of where you're staying on the island, whether it's, you know, up West Island at Kapolua or Napili or Kaanapali or down South Island in Kihei and Wailea and McKenna, you drive to Lahaina to go shop for groceries or T-shirts or go for a nice meal or visit the galleries or whatever. And, um, you know, I, I think I personally have shopped at Honolulu Surf Company and my kids have eaten ice cream at Lappert's and we visited Fleetwood's, the the place that's owned by Mick Fleetwood of Fleetwood Mac right on Front Street. And I, I just love Lahaina. And I, I see by these pictures that central Lahaina has been wiped out like it's just burned out cars and piles of smoking ash and that was bustling with galleries and souvenir shops and restaurants and I just I just I'm at a loss for words at the devastation and the destruction this was a 
peaceful, historic, um, kind of just treasured town and, and home to almost like, I think it's 13,000 people. Um, and people have been visiting for just hundreds of years. And I, I, and I know that tourism is important to Maui and that um, visitors are going to return and Lahaina and other areas are going to recover, but it's the people. Yeah. It's the shop owners and their employees and where do people sleep and how do they pay for food and clothing and the necessities of life. The, I mean, the shelters are, are full and... Well, they're, they're, and they're flying people to Oahu, residents, tourists, everybody, because they prepared the convention center there to bring people in. And I know they've said, Claire Wright, as well, like no tourists right now, just no tourists. Yes, no tourists. I mean, uh, you know, it, it almost feels selfish to be going there and during this, this time. And, and I don't know when will be the right time to go. But right now, these people are worried about where they're going to stay and what they're going to eat. Um, the hospitals are overrun with people um, from smoke inhalation and burns, and they can't even treat the people with burns yeah. on Maui. They need to get them over to Oahu. So it's just devastating. I, it just, I know that many of us who love that island as, you know, going as a visitor have lost a really special place. The yeah. places can be rebuilt. Um, others have lost their homes and their businesses and maybe loved ones even yeah. worse. Like the time, just- I think the time will come, right, for Canadians to step up and help. And I know we will. Yes. I know that yes. when when Hawaiians are ready for us to help, that we will be there to help. But I guess also, Claire, for you today, the big issue is as well is if you if we have or someone has a, a ticket to Maui in the next week or two, like what do they do? Right. The airlines are being very, very flexible and waiving any change fees and allowing people to to cancel. And so this is not a time to go to Maui. It's not safe for people to go there. There's a lot of smoke. Roads are closed. Hospitals are overrun. Power is out. Um, Cell phones uh, and phone systems are spotty. Like it's just not safe to be there. So if you have imminent plans, um, I know that our our team here have been cancelling people who were set to leave in the next couple of weeks, even into September. Um, it, it and and we really it's just so early to to find out beyond that what to do. But if you have the opportunity with the airline or the tour operator that you book with to cancel without any penalties, do that. It's it's not the right time to be there. Um, it, one day. Okay, and so then should people call the airline? They should they should try yeah, and, and so getting yep. If you've booked with a, a travel agent, your travel agent will be able to take care of all of the details. If you've booked with an airline or tour operator directly, you'll need to contact them. Um, if you know people who are there, Simi, and we did know people who were there right. who maybe booked themselves and we were booking them to come home yesterday. Some of those flights were canceled. I have heard that Recognizance flights are going in by both Air Canada and WestJet to get people safely out. The smoke was impacting those flights and that's why they were canceled. But I understand that they're going uh, to be, be flying today. Um, Kahului, the airport there, is still open. It's just that they they can't get all of the flights. It's serviced year-round by so many different airlines. Um, I think based on domestic and um, international flights, there's probably about 100 to 120 a day that fly out of Kahului. Like, people love this place. Oh, yeah. Um, and they love it year-round. Right now, the, you know, people are going with their families because kids are out of school and people are on their honeymoons. Um, and then, of course, it really picks up kind of November 1st through until April 30th when all so many tourists head there. But um, it's really important to 
to get in touch. Now, don't go to the airport, though. From what I understand, um, the airport is just really crowded with people trying to, you know, who've either landed with no place to go or have he- people have headed to the, the airport to try and get on flights. Your airline central reservations or your travel agent are the ones to call to be able to get you rebooked safely um, and just, you know, shelter in place where you are until you have a flight booked. Right. And a good advice that if you know somebody who is there, help them out from this end. We actually had a lot of people doing that. I had friends helping friends. I had agents helping clients. It's, um, and that is something that you, you can do for people who may not have power in their, on their cell phone. I mean, in yeah. shelters, we heard that people, there weren't enough plug, plug-ins to charge phones and things. And you can imagine with the phone lines out in certain areas, this is a really rough and ever-changing situation. And depending on which way the wind blows, there's a lot of different areas of Maui that could be impacted still. It is such a changing situation. Listen, Claire, thank you so much for that. And I know you're going to get a lot of questions. It'll be very busy for you, but we appreciate your time on that this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. That's Claire Newell from Travel Best Bet. So if you think you're going to Maui, you're not, at least not for the near future. Now, our Scott Chance has been out at YVR all morning as a couple of flights have been arriving from Maui and he joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi, how are you guys? Good. Thank you. So, So another flight has arrived, I take it. Uh, the Air Canada flight is arriving any minute now, uh, so we'll wait and talk to a few more people off of that flight. But the WestJet flight that arrived uh, maybe about half an hour ago, there's still people coming off of that flight. They're kind of interspersed, but you can tell the pe- they just all look so stressed and so tired as they come out of the, uh, the arrivals gate here. Right. So what's it like for them? I know you've been talking to some of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of them haven't slept, spent the night in the airport or uh, in a vehicle. Uh, A lot of people saying that they had to, you know, sort of take matters into their own hands to kind of get out. Uh, The main road from Lahaina to the airport had been closed. So a few people who know the island well know that you can take the north road around. But that road, if you've ever driven it, is incredibly narrow, long, dark, sketchy. So people were stressed from that. Quite a few people had kids with them, and you could tell that they were just exhausted, didn't want to talk. We did talk to one family, and, Simi, the thing that hit me, like, you could smell the smoke on their clothes. It was just insane that, uh, you know, they had to leave in the middle of their vacation, you know, get to the airport and stand in line for two hours and luckily get on a flight. You're right. Okay. Well, let's hear some of what you heard from people at the airport this morning. Yeah, absolutely. This uh, woman that I spoke with, her name is Bianca. She just got off this most recent flight. So it was pretty harrowing. There was no communication, no service. So we didn't know what was happening. Yeah. And kind of the advice was take the north road, which is the back roads which no one uses. But luckily we did that and then we were able to get out because, I don't know, the people there, they we heard that they were then taking tourists now to the airport because it was just, it was pretty scary. No food, no water, just did, no communication. Yeah, yeah, there was, there was thick smoke. So we were like, do we evacuate? They're like, oh, I don't know, we, the roads are closed that way, sorry. So yeah, it's just, it was quite an experience. But so we, we were just like, we were kind of at a, at a loss. Like, what do you do? Because we had no idea. You can't look onto kind of Google Maps and see, is that road that bad that they say? But then, I mean, luckily, I think it was okay. And the advice should have been just tell people to go slow and take the road and get out. Like, you know what I mean? You're, you're going to just starve to death otherwise. So. No, it was it was very scary. I'm not going to lie. It was, it was pretty harrowing. And, like, 
you know, your dream vacation turns into something like this, you didn't know, but like at least we weren't affected. The people there are having it a lot worse. People's, their homes, their livelihoods. I mean, those art galleries, everything's lost and burnt. So I think it's, you know, we got out lucky, so... Sounds like it as well. It's just so devastating for so many people who have visited that beautiful spot, Scott. So you're going to hang out at the airport there a little while longer? Yeah, absolutely. Talk to a few more people as they come off and hopefully get some more stories. But the general consensus, just people glad to be home, glad to be safe, and of course, sad for, for what's still happening in Maui. Oh, absolutely. Scott, thank you.